As you're finding your way to your seats, I want to mention that next Sunday we begin a new series. It's in the Paul's letter to the Galatians. The title of the series is Amazing Grace, and I hope that through this series, grace will become amazing or more amazing to you. I want to encourage you sometime this week, uh, if you can find the time, read the letter to the Galatians. It's just six chapters. Uh, read that. Read that a couple times if you can, and I think that'll help you get ready for that series. Today we finish a five-part series on our vision as a church, and we've been seeing throughout the series that we are a spirit-filled community. The church of Jesus Christ is filled by the Holy Spirit, and yet sometimes the ministry of the Spirit can be uh, confusing. You can be uncertain about that. It can be hard to understand, and so uh, I have an article for you that I've uh, appreciated from, uh, from an author that I've really appreciated, Sam Storms. And so out at the Welcome Center and also available on the follow-up email, 10 things you should know about post-conversion experiences of the Holy Spirit. If you want to know more about uh, what it means to be filled and empowered by the Spirit in an ongoing way, I want to encourage you to that article. Um, this morning, as, as Kenneth mentioned in the, in the call to worship, and just to give you a little bit of a heads up, we're going to do the sermon as usual. And then after the sermon... We're just going to loosen up a little bit, do things a little, little different than, than, than usual. We're going to have an extra song after the sermon, so we've got three songs planned for that. And then um, as we close the meeting, for the last couple songs, we're going to invite anybody that wants to, to just come on up and stand up in front and we can sing together. It's something that uh, RGC did a number of years ago, certainly pre-COVID, and um, uh, uh, I'll explain a little bit more when it's time to do that, but I just want to give you the heads up. And then as we close the meeting today, you are actually going to be the closers. We're going to sing the doxology, the praise to God together as we, as we prepare to go out. So this message is really designed to orient us to hearing and seeing freshly the glory of our great God in Christ and then responding with singing. And so that's what we're trying to just make a little extra room for this morning. This morning's passage, we've been in the book of Acts for the previous messages in this series, but this morning we're in Revelation chapter 5, and Ruth Joe is going to read the passage for us. Thanks, Ruth. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Oh God, as we turn our attention to the book of Revelation, we pray for that revealing work by the Spirit's power. Oh God, would you show us your glory? Would you show us the glory of Jesus Christ? Would there be a seeing that leads to worship and singing through the power of your word and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Well, four years ago, at about this time, Leslie and I were at a baseball game. Our home team, the Washington Nationals, were playing in a playoff game. And if they won, they got to move on to the next round. So late in the game, the Nationals were behind. And I was preparing for the usual disappointment because I know how this goes. Washington, D.C. sports teams lose games like this. So late in the game, they got three guys on base. And in the eighth inning, Juan Soto comes up and he got a hit. And the guys scored. And all of a sudden, the Nationals were ahead. When he got that hit, there were 40,000 people in the stadium. And they sat there quietly, some yawning some deciding to go to the bathroom. No, are you kidding? Do you know what happened? They went nuts. The Washington Post used the word delirium to describe the scene. People, we were there, people were jumping and shouting. We were high-fiving strangers. People were throwing $12 beers in the air. It was pandemonium. And it didn't stop until they won the game and kept going long after that. Leslie and I joined thousands of people joyfully, expressively celebrating the Nationals. This kind of joyful corporate celebration, this comes naturally to us. I, I believe we were hardwired. Human beings are made for joyful celebrations. And this chapter of scripture prepares us for the ultimate corporate celebration, the end of history. For the past four weeks, we've been in a series about our church's vision. Our vision is to be a community that exalts and displays and declares the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. And each week we've seen how the Spirit empowers communities like ours to be united in three directions, up in worship, in in fellowship, and out in witness and proclamation. So this morning, we're circling back to where we started, focusing up on 
worship. And there is really no better chapter to go to in all of Scripture than Revelation 5. We will see there the why and the how of worship. This chapter puts the spotlight uniquely on Jesus as the lamb who was slain and is worthy. Worthy. Worthy is the lamb of universal, joyful, eternal worship. So as we go through the passage, just want to ask you to keep in mind two questions. Why is Jesus worthy of worship? And how is he Worshipped, And as we go through that, then we're going to draw some implications for our own worship and especially our own Sunday morning corporate gatherings and especially our corporate singing. And then we're going to have some time to respond by singing. So let's begin where the passage does with a haunting question. The key verse, the key word in Revelation 5 is the third word in the ESV here. Then I saw. Then I saw. Revelation is theology by picture. It's called revelation because it's a revealing of heavenly things and the things that are about to happen. It's a revealing of the kingdom of God. And here, John has been, uh, uh, by the power of the Spirit, enabled to, to see what's happening in God's throne room. Now, you need to understand, Revelation 5 is part two of a two-part section. Chapter 4 is the setting for chapter 5, which is the drama. In chapter 4, John, the apostle, the writer, is enabled by the Spirit to see what's happening in the control center of the universe, God's throne. And there he sees this being on the throne, God, but he's so awesome, he can't really describe him very well because he's never seen anything like him. And around the throne are these four living beings and then these 24 heavenly elders and those who are closest to the throne, those who can see God most clearly are caught up in perpetual worship. They are singing. They are casting their crowns before him. They are physically falling down before this great God. And then we shift to chapter 5. And he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written on the back and sealed with seven seals. What's that all about? What is happening here? Well, let me keep going on. We'll come back to the scroll in a second. Because he hears something. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? That's the crucial question in this opening part. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, you need to understand what this scroll is all about or you can't understand the passage. A scroll in the first century was their version of a book. Right? So it was... These parchments had writing on them. Parchments were valuable, so they would often write on both sides. And then when they weren't being used, they would be rolled up. So here's a book that's written on the outside and on the inside, but it's been closed. It's been sealed with seven stickers, if you will, seven seals. And so it's, it's, it's not readable at this point. What's the significance of the scroll? Why is it so important? 
Hold on to that question. I'll come back to it in just a second. But I want you to, to see first that there is this universal search that takes place. Is any, what's the question? Who can open it? Is anyone worthy to open the scroll? Can anyone be found? And it says in verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And what happens? When no one can open this scroll or read it, John begins to weep loudly. So I want you to get a sense of how, how dramatic this, this situation is. No one can be found. No angel, no one alive, no hero past or present or future can be found worthy to open this scroll. Not Moses, not Alexander the Great, not the angel Gabriel, not Jesus' mother Mary, not Buddha or Mother Teresa or Michelle Obama or Elon Musk or anyone else. This is a Google search that returns no results. No one can be found. Imagine, maybe you've had the experience at work and you're, you've got this job and you just can't find the right person to fill that spot. Maybe you're paying attention to politics on the Hill. Who's going to be the Speaker of the House? Can anybody fill it? What if nobody was ever found to fill that spot? What would happen to our government? Well, this is even more dramatic than that. And John is weeping loudly. And here's why. This scroll represents God's plans for the world. You'll see as the scroll is opened later in the chapter, and then uh, each seal is, is broken in chapter 6 and chapters beyond, you'll see God's plan of redemption begins to be carried out in the world. And so if that scroll remains closed, if no one can open it and read it, if that plan can't be accessed, God's kingdom will not come. His will will not be done. Evil wins. Justice will not finally triumph. All God's promises of a new people in a new creation, they will fall to the floor empty and unfulfilled. John weeps at this prospect. Until verse 5, a stunning answer. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He can open the scroll. One of the elders, verse 5, said to me, weep no more. Oh, hear that. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven Seals. The tension has built. The search is fruitless. John is weeping. And then this good news. Now, as you read through Revelation 5 and all of Revelation, the more you read the Old Testament, the more this will mean to you. Because every chapter, almost every verse is saturated in the Old Testament. So when he says the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's an allusion, an allusion to the Old Testament. So you, who is this line of the tribe of Judah? Well, here's the scene. 4,000 years ago, a dying father gathered his 12 sons. And he spoke to each one about what was coming for each of them. And when the son named Judah came to the father whose name was Jacob, Jacob told him that he was a lion's cub. And he predicted that his line would be rulers. Out of his line, there would be a scepter, the symbol of a king's authority. 
And it wouldn't depart from that line. And along comes, in Israel, Israel's history, there are two great kings. King David, King Solomon. Whose line are they from? The line of Judah. The lion of Judah. And so when Solomon builds his, his throne, he has armrests on an either side of the armrest. What's there? A lion. And there's six stairs. And on either side of the six stairs, more lions. Jesus comes as the ultimate descendant of Judah. And he has conquered. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And so he has authority to open that scroll. Now John hears this. And then he looks and he, and he, he sees the throne. And he sees those four living beings and the 24 elders, and, and then drumroll please, as he's about to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he looks, and what does he see? Look what happens. Verse 6, I saw a lamb. And, and this is a strange sight. Theology by picture. Get the implications here. Standing as though slain, slaughtered, killed, but dead no more. Somehow the evidence that this, this being had died and risen again was immediately evident to John. Think about your Old Testament, lambs, Passover, Exodus, the angel of death, Passes over the houses of the people of Israel because they're protected by what? By the blood of a slain lamb. Solomon dedicates this magnificent temple to God. What sacrifice there? 120,000 sheep. Sacrifices. All these lambs have two things in common. One, they die as substitutes for others. Two, they're still dead. Every one of them. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, our Passover Lamb, has died as our substitute, but he's not dead. He lives, standing. And what does his death accomplish? Well, peek ahead at verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And here it is. You ready? Hear this. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Can you hear that? He ransoms people for God. He pays the price to rescue people like us from the death penalty that we deserve for our rebellion against God. And he doesn't just rescue us from that. He then transforms us from self-centered idolaters to God-centered worshipers. Who can do that? Jesus can. By the power of the Holy Spirit. No one else could do what he did. And now he goes to the throne and that scroll is put in his hand. Because his death ransoms people for God, the slaughtered lamb is worthy to take that scroll, which means what? 
It means he is worthy to carry out God's plan for history, which means what? Which means that everything that's happening in your life and in our city and on this globe yesterday, today, and forever is under the supreme authority of the lamb who was slain. Fear not, O people of God. He's in charge. He has conquered he is conquering, and he will conquer. And so, what's the response when all this is happening in the control center of the universe? Third point, there's a universal response. Worthy is the lamb. Maybe you've seen what happens when you toss a rock into a pond on a still morning, and from that point of impact, you see these ripples radiating out. You have ever seen that happen? Well, what happens in front of us here in this last part of chapter 5 is like those ripples. At the revealing, the seeing of the lion who's conquered, the lamb who was slain, and him taking this scroll to carry out God's purposes, to bring his kingdom into the earth, and ultimately to bring a new people into a new creation. We get these ripples of worship. It starts with those four living creatures and the 24 elders right there by the throne. Look at verse 9. Again, they sang song. Who's singing that? The four living creatures and the 24 elders. When Jesus is revealed as the one worthy to take the scroll, the 24 elders, literally, they fall down before the throne. That is their physical response. And then they respond with this song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. That's the first ripple. The next one, look at verse 11. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. What's a myriad? That's not a word that we use a lot. I had to look it up in my dictionary. A myriad is literally 10,000. So myriads of myriads is 10,000 times 10,000, which is like 100 million. And then there's thousands of thousands, so millions more. Do you get the idea that, that John is trying to tell us that around the throne assembled a company of angels that numbered in the hundreds of millions, maybe in the billions? Just slow down for a second. What's the biggest crowd you've ever been in? In a stadium? At a parade? Maybe you've been in or seen an inauguration crowd. What's the biggest crowd you can imagine? 50,000, 100,000, maybe a couple hundred thousand. I want you to try to imagine hundreds of millions of angels around God's throne. And what are they doing? They're singing. They're declaring. Can you imagine what this might sound like? You're going to get a chance to one day if you're a follower of Christ. Here's what they say. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then there's one more. 
ripple outside of that. Look at verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. This is the same kind of universal search, universal description that we saw when they were looking for someone worthy to open the scroll. And I, I, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Don't miss that the same worship offered to God is equally given to the lamb. Why? Because the lamb is the son of God second person of the Trinity. And this seems to encompass all creatures. Now in the symbolism of Revelation, we don't know if this is sort of a picture on sort of on the other side of the lake of fire and all God's enemies have been removed as this is coming into view or perhaps it's kind of a Philippians 2 kind of a situation where every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord, whether sort of they like it or not. But we know this. He is worthy of all praise. We know this, he is worthy and he will in the end be glorified, honored and exalted by those who see him most clearly right near the throne, by the angels who know what he's done and by all creatures who've come to know and love and serve and follow him. And the living beings and the elders add their amen and fall down and worship. What is worship? What is worship? Worship is always a response. I want you to get that. If that's, if that's not what comes to mind when you think of worship, write that down, hang on to that, think about that. Worship is always a response. Worship is always the second thing that happens. Lightning, then thunder. Night, then morning. God's glory revealed worship in response. Before worship can happen, God must make himself known in his glory. Seeing comes first, singing comes second. These scenes of worship are joyful and corporate and loud and physically expressive. People are Beings are singing and falling down. This is not a library-like atmosphere. Can you, can you get a sense of how loud this is? Right? These worshipers are louder and more numerous than Swifties at a Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> That's a fact. Just thought you might want to know that. Celebration is in our DNA. You were made for this. You see this all the time, cheering when the bride and groom kiss at a wedding. Little cheering sections here at a baptism. Or maybe you've been to a graduation, you got the family and friends that cheer when the graduate goes across the stage. Cheering and encouraging at the end of a 5K race. You know, it might even be the kind of quiet... Just encouragement to one another, the family sitting around a dining room table celebrating a child overcoming an addiction. 
We, we see and experience, we resonate with this kind of corporate celebrating. We were made for this. And yet, you know, everything that we celebrate here sooner or later comes to an end. I'm not going to any Nationals games this October because they ended in last place again. Because this is Washington, D.C., and that's how the story goes. But that's a different story. Would you like to be a part of a story where the people really do live happily ever after? Would you like to worship a hero who will never disappoint you, never be exposed scandalously, never, ever, ever let you down? Would you like to belong to a family where you are accepted always, loved always, no matter what? Would you like the relief of knowing that your worst sins, that your biggest failures, and your most shameful words and actions have been washed away, gone forever. Would you like to live like that? Yes. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. If you will turn from living for yourself, repent from stealing from God the worship and the glory and the honor that he deserves and come and follow Jesus Christ. His blood will pay your ransom and set you free. Oh, won't you come to him? Why is Jesus worthy of worship? Because he's ransomed people for God. And how? How is he worshiped? Celebratory, loud, joyful, expressive singing. Now, we're not there yet. There's times and places and need for lament and weeping here. But that joy and celebration is also present now and coming in fullness later. That's your future, brothers and sisters. The slaughtered lamb is worthy to carry out God's plan for history. The slaughtered lamb is worthy to receive thunderous and universal worship. So let's, let's make some connection points for worship, four takeaways about worship. First, worship is, is the proper response to the glory of God. Worship is always a response. It's a response to the glory of God. There's a reason why we start our service with this call to worship. It's just to remind us that worship doesn't start with us. We're not initiating anything here, but our creator has already called us to worship. And we're just being reminded of that fact at the beginning of our worship services. Second, the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else has the power to transform us from self-centered idolaters to God-centered worshipers. The only way to be we're all worshipers. 
We're all worshiping something. We're all investing our hope in something, our love and our trust in someone or something. But the only way to get it right is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, his saving work empowered by the Holy Spirit in our lives. Third, true worship is all of life. It's adoration and action. It's everything that we are. Worship isn't just what happens between 10.30 and noon on Sunday mornings. It isn't limited just to times of singing. No, all of our lives are intended to be lived out in worshipful, God-honoring ways. To give Christ power and wealth and wisdom and might is to live for him in every square inch of our lives. So worship encompasses Going to work and taking out the trash and going to the gym and brushing your teeth and morning devotions and watching TV and everything else. It's all for him. Every square inch. So worship is intended to be all of life. Adoration, explicit expressions of praise to God, but also all that we do. And then finally this, worship rightfully includes physical expressiveness. And I just want to just camp out here just, just for a moment. Kneeling, bowing down, clapping, raising hands, lamenting, shouting, standing in awe-filled silence, dancing. These are all appropriate and biblical responses to God. Read the Psalms, 47, 63, 149 in particular, if you want to see that worked out there. When we sing together as a congregation, it is appropriate for us to be expressive with our bodies, for we are embodied creatures. So we stand, we clap. Being expressive also involves our minds and our emotions because that's part of how we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're not talking about showy emotionalism and we're not talking about pumping people up for some emotional experience, but we're talking about bringing to God our bodies, our emotions, our desires, our hearts. And I understand and we want to understand that people express emotions and joy differently. Some are more outwardly expressive than others. And we also understand some cultures are more expressive than others. It was our joy during a sabbatical earlier this year for Les and I to be able to visit a number of different churches. And there were several African-American congregations that we visited. And it was just so wonderful to experience the expressiveness in the singing and in the preaching. And let me say that in this pulpit, the preaching gets better when the preacher gets expressive encouragement during the preaching. So that's okay to do. Okay. Thank you, Martha Weaver. Yeah. So we do express these things differently and, and, and that's fine. But sometimes we fail to express things because we're really thinking more about other people than about God, right? Like that happens to all of us. Vince and I were at a con uh, conference this week and, and he mentioned something and I'd had the same experience. We're at this conference. There's a time of singing and, and, and we're kind of ready to put our hands up, but we're both kind of looking around like, is anybody else doing this or is it just us? You know, and like that happens to me still, you know? And so there's a reality that we're aware of what's going on around us, but what we really want to be is more aware of God and responding to who he is than anything else. Now, we don't want to be inconsiderate of other people. We don't want to be rude to other people and unhelpfully make other people uncomfortable. But 
Think about this. When, just, let's just bring this home. Kneeling, bowing down, clapping, singing loudly, raising hands. How comfortable are you personally with those things in the worship of God? You don't have to do that to be a Christian or to sing here, but you can do that. Just want to encourage. That's acceptable and encouraged and welcome. And this is a great place for us just to, just to ask for the empowering work of the Spirit. If that's newish or uncomfortable for you, it's, it's, we can ask the Lord to help us. But, because you know what? It always takes God to worship God. We need his help in these things. And we're not making any new laws here. We're not creating tiers of worshipers. Like if you clap, you're in the silver, silver level, right? But if you lift your hands, oh man, you're gold level now. But if you shout or dance, well, you've hit platinum, baby. Like, you're up there. Like, we're not doing that, okay? What, what we're trying to do here this morning is just simply this. Just say, hey, it's, it's okay to be physically expressive when we sing. And if you've never felt like falling down before the Lord like those elders were around the throne, that's okay. It doesn't mean you're wrong. But we want you to feel the freedom to be physically expressive in worship. And, and we're trying to find that middle ground between being afraid of what other people think on the one hand and being inconsiderate of other people on the others. And we want to do this. Why? Because the lamb who was slain and by his blood ransomed people like us for God, that lamb is worthy to be praised. That's why we want to do this. So we're going to have the Lord's Supper first, and then we're going to sing after that. We're going to do this just a little differently today. First of all, let me say, in, in, in what we're about to do in, in receiving the Lord's Supper, this is a, a, a ritual, a, a symbolic meal for Christians. So if you know that the Lamb of God has ransomed you by his blood, you are welcome to participate in this. If you haven't gotten there yet personally, that's okay. You're welcome in this place. We want to encourage you not to participate in this little meal, but to just take this time to think about your life and about the future and about eternity and what happens after you die and who Jesus really is. What's going to be a little different today is we always encourage you to have a time of meditation and thinking about the Lord during this. We want to do that today, but we're going to help by, by providing a song. The band is going to sing a song right out of Revelation here. And so as you come up and get the elements, as you're standing in line, as you go back and sit down, you can take them whenever you're ready. But we want to just encourage you to listen to the words of the song and reflect on them. They'll be up on the screen so that, the, the, that this might help bring the glory of Christ freshly to you. There are eight tables throughout the auditorium, four in front, two in the back on the sides down here, and two up there. As you come and receive the bread, please be aware that it's all gluten-free matzo crackers. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for revelation, revealing. Thank you for making your glory known to us by sending your son to be one of us. The son of God, the son of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain. As we receive this little meal now, Holy Spirit, would you freshly give us eyes to see Christ and hearts in a few minutes to respond with joyful singing. Amen. Come on up when you're ready.